Let me open us in a word of prayer. Whatever might distract us now, Lord, from your mighty power and goodness, take it away from our hearts and our minds. Purify us and fill us with your spirit, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most important theology books to have been written in the 20th century is written by a man named J.I. Packer. You may have heard him, a great theologian. He died about the last year or so. He passed away in his 90s. And he wrote a book called Knowing God, and it's been one of the most impactful books that was written in that century. And uh, in the preface of that book, he says this. The conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit, the spirit, that is, that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves only small thoughts of God. Leaves room for only small thoughts of God. Churchmen who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of the telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions, to tiny proportions, cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. What I want to say to you is that's what we're up against when we read the book of Exodus. We're up against the spirit of the age, both outside the church and within the church, that has reduced the great God of heaven. And as God has been brought down, as we've turned the telescope around and viewed him through the wrong lens, and he's become small, Christians have become small. This is why our theology is always tied to our ethics, to our lives. It's what we believe about God. It's always going to impact the way we live. And when we study the book of Exodus, let me, let me implore you to understand, we're not trying to just learn Bible stories and make a few applications along the way. We are invited to know God. And ignorance of God, that is a plague upon the church today, ignorance of God is what we come against when we open up the pages of the Bible and we say, God has revealed himself. And we seek to know him through his word. This is our joy and our privilege and our obligation we're invited to know God interactively, and that's how our lives become meaningful and rich. God is real, and you can know him. And that's the only message I have to preach in one form or another, and if I didn't believe that, I, I wouldn't have anything to say to you. But we're trying to get the telescope turned back around the right direction, to use Packer's analogy, and let God be magnified before our vision so that we can become who he wants us to be. Now maybe the plagues on Egypt have not helped you very much in seeing God, as magnificent as he is. I hope that changes today. And I hope you'll see that this story, the, the whole book of Exodus is given to us to see the magnificence of God. Let's just remember briefly where we are in this story. I'll go back to the front page for now on the PowerPoint. Remember that, that God's people had been led out of, or they'd been led into Egypt by, out of their, their famine, and, and, and uh, Joseph, the, the great man of 
of God who was raised up to be the, the prime minister of Egypt and then the people uh, were there. But after a number of years, they grew, I guess you could say they grew distant from God. God was not showing up in powerful ways before them. And they had forgotten God, it seems. Maybe they heard stories about him, heard that one of their ancestors had, had known him. Some of their ancestors had heard from him. But at the time we meet them, that doesn't seem like they know much about him. Now, you've got to stop and, and let the story be told and not download all our information into the story from up front. Of course, you know where the story ends, and they're going to know God. But that's not where they start. They start, and there's just no evidence in the text that they know hardly anything about God. And God comes along as they're at this distant place, and he arranges one man's life so that that man can then be a mighty deliverer for them. And he sends him, him well, he ends up out in Egypt, uh, out, in the, out in the desert, away from Egypt, after he's raised in Egypt. And, and this guy then, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, you're going to go be the deliverer of my people. Please understand that Moses, Moses at that point, he doesn't know God either. He knows a little bit about him, maybe. He's heard some stories. But he's like, who are you? What do I tell him your name is? How am I going to do this? I don't want to do this. Moses is a good man, it seems like, but he doesn't know God. He's not the guy who's just natural-born hero, ready to go. He's scared. He doesn't think he can do it. And he doesn't know that the God of heaven will, will be with him. This is, this is where we meet Moses. Well, then Moses accepts, you know, after God convinces him, accepts the, the mission. He goes, he tells the people, they receive it readily, they're excited about it. They, they say, yes, we believe you. Moses marches right into Pharaoh, tells him what's going to happen. Josh talked to us about this stuff last week. Uh, he tells him what's going to happen, and Pharaoh says these faithful words, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God would like to answer that question. Who is the Lord that I, Pharaoh, should obey him? Who is the Lord that you should obey him? See, that's the question we want to put before ourselves as we enter into this sermon today. Who is the Lord that any of us should obey him? And are you living in obedience to the Lord? That's the question that Pharaoh puts before us. For us to encounter as we, as we enter into the, the text today. The people then, Pharaoh increases their oppression, and they complain. Moses complains to God. Nobody believes anything anymore. They're all upset. And then we come to the place where the Lord makes this speech that Josh talked about last week. The Lord comes to Moses and makes a speech. He begins it by saying, I am the Lord. And he ends it by saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, although as Brother Terry said, nobody knows for sure how to pronounce that, but, but it gets translated for us usually in our English Bibles, the Lord. He begins to, and ends this speech where he makes seven promises, that I will do this, I will do that. And he says, I am the Lord. Imagine if I came here, you didn't know me very well, right when I was starting here as a preacher, and I said, first thing I stand up before you and I do, I am Luke Post. I will do this, I will do that. You will know that I have done it. I am Luke Post. <laughs> It'd be startling, wouldn't it? You'd probably think I was an egomaniac. <laughs> because you'd know that's not really the way a human being should talk. 
But you see, God is coming to them claiming the authority that he alone has. And he is saying, you should know who I am. That's what Josh was telling us last, last week. The revelation gets advanced. He gives them a new name by which to know them, to understand. He's taking them and taking them out of their bondage, not just to set them free, but to make them his very own chosen possession. I'm the Lord. And you'll know me in this way. But they still don't know him. That's what has to change. And that's why we're going to see God show himself powerfully. That's around chapter 6, the middle of chapter 6. In case the story is getting too interesting for you, we get interrupted with genealogy. That's just to make sure you want it. You've got to keep going if you want to read it. No, I, I don't have time to get into it, but uh, genealogies bore me. But uh, I'd ask you to explore why we meet a genealogy right there. You can think about it for yourself on your own. We get this genealogy, and then we get Moses again saying to the Lord, but Lord, my lips, they're uncircumcised. The circumcision is the sign of the covenant, and he applies it to his lips. I can't speak. I've still got this problem. The Lord says, no, go. It's the beginning of chapter 7. If you want to open up your, your book there, um, if, you have, if you have one of these, if you if you're, haven't gotten one of these, we want to uh, get you one. If you're interested, they're $5. I'm going to read from my Bible, but uh, uh, follow along if you're marking and, and taking notes in your other uh, book, the Exodus book that you have. So Exodus chapter 7 is where we'll get going here. And I just want to say a word about the famous passage, uh, it's a famous statement that's made multiple times in verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Go, Moses, I'm going to show you what to do, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm not going to take a long time talking about this. Brother Terry mentioned it a while back. I want you to, to just be aware that he, God does not say, I'm going to take a good person who wants to do good things and make him bad. That's not what God's hardening of someone's heart is. In fact, one commentator suggests that we understand this word as, as he strengthens Pharaoh's heart. He makes it strong and hard. The idea is Pharaoh already wants to do this. Pharaoh is already choosing to do this. He's already an oppressor. He's already a wicked tyrant. Right? So God didn't just take him and flip him around because he wants to hurt some people and wants to help other people. I think that's toxic theology, just for the record. And... Uh, we could talk a lot longer about those kind of things, but I don't believe that, that understanding that, that gets spread around sometimes. This is not what God did. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He strengthened him to do the things he already wanted to do. But he did strengthen him to do it, and we'll see reasons for that. One reason why is because of justice. Do you remember what Pharaoh has been doing to the Israelites? Oppressing them, brutally enslaving them, having their babies drowned in the Nile. And justice will be done. And God's going to see to that. Now, I wish I had more time to talk more about that, but I just want to move on quickly past it. Look at verse, verse 5 here, 7 5. After, we'll just read verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That may be the most revealing, the most significant statement in the book of Exodus. Not just this one, but it's made repeatedly. We're going to see it repeatedly today. In fact, it's, it's a, one of the most significant statements in the Bible. 
when you understand what it's overall getting at. God wants to be revealed to people. He is a God who reveals himself. They will know that I am the Lord when they see me do these things. If you want to underline in your Exodus book, take your pen and underline these statements. We'll, we'll highlight uh, several of them this morning where, where the Lord says they will know. When I do these things, they will know that I am the Lord. God is choosing a people to bear his great name. And if we're going to bear his great name, we have to know who he is. There's no other way to go about it. The whole point of this people, the whole point of human history, is that people will know the Lord. This is what we're made for. They're going to know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring, about, bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now let me just pause there. This is not the point of my sermon, but I just can't pass this up to say to you, uh, these guys are old. And they're doing something they never planned to do. And I just want to say to you, whether you're old or young, you may not have realized what God has planned for you in his kingdom. Sometimes we are in long, long seasons of preparation. And we don't realize what God wants to do with this. And it's unfortunate in a youth-obsessed society that we think sort of you run out of gas when you get to a certain age. <laughs> and then you're supposed to sort of glide on into the grave. Here these people were in their 80s, and they didn't know this was coming. It's not like they had read the Bible in advance. But, okay, here, I'm almost 80. It's coming. You know, they were just living their lives. Moses thought, well, I've made my peace. I left Egypt. I'm out here taking care of my family, taking care of the, the sheep. I'm going to just live out here. And then a burning bush comes up and says, actually, Moses, you don't realize the point of your life. You don't realize what I've got ready for you. So I want to say this to you. Whether you're one of the older ones here who may, not, uh, who may need a message to, to, to know that God's not done with you, or whether you're one of the younger ones here who may be thinking, well, I don't really know what's coming. Either way, be looking for God and be in preparation for God and let him show you what your purpose is in life and what he has for you wherever you are. Don't think that he gets done with you. I, I just love that God surprises us. God surprises us with who and who he uses and how he uses them and when he uses them. And get ready. Wherever you are, have an open heart and say, maybe, maybe it's time for the bush to flame up and speak to me. Maybe the reason I've dealt with so much and been trying to get steady on my feet for so long in life it's because God's going to use all those experiences when he finally steadies me out and I am going to get to do something powerfully in the kingdom of God. Mother Teresa told Malcolm Muggeridge, and Malcolm Muggeridge was an older, famous, famous man in Britain when he was converted uh, to Christ. She told him, we must always remind people they are never too old to do something beautiful for God. I want to remind you today, you're never too old to do something beautiful for God. And in fact, the point of your life, one way or the other, is to be doing something beautiful for God. All right, let's get back to the sermon. After an initial meeting, I won't take time to read it, the whole 
snake scene, you can read it, where Moses throw, or Aaron throws down the rod, it becomes a snake. The magicians are able to mimic that, that miracle, whether that's a scientific move on their part or some kind of uh, magic trick that they do, or is, whether it's demonic power, we don't have to sort all that out. They mimic it, but then Moses's rod, Aaron's rod, eats up, uh, the, the snake eats up their snakes. It says something right there, right? And then we enter into the plagues. I want to say, show you something about the, the structure of the plagues this morning. You can structure them in two ways. You'll notice here there's only nine up there. But the, other, the last one is set apart. And that's the death of the firstborn. So it's kind of separated already. And then if you, if you follow the text closely, you'll see that, the, the, that you can put them in sets of three. And in the first meeting of the three sets, it always takes place as Pharaoh is going out to take a bath at the Nile in the morning. Whatever you may want to say about Pharaoh, you can't say he wasn't a cleanly guy. He's taking these baths regularly. Then they meet at the palace, and then God just says, do it, and don't announce it. And each time, the first two in the, in the set of three there, Moses goes to him, and he announces what, what's going to happen to him. And then the last one, he doesn't. Here's another way, though, you can structure these, these plagues, including the tenth one with it, with them. You've got, you see, going progressively down on your left-hand side, the Nile plagues, blood and frogs. Bug plagues, this is what I've called them, gnats and flies. Disease plagues, livestock are killed, boils break out on their bodies. Crop plagues, hail and locusts destroying the crops. And then what I've just called the definitive plagues. This is where it's just saying it's over. Total darkness and death come. And you see how there's a progression there? I've labeled it lightheartedly. It stinks, you know, the frogs and the bugs. It says that in the text, in both of them. The land stinks. Uh, and it stings. They actually, someone said the gnats might be mosquitoes. Not exactly sure how to translate that. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Uh, Texas has that plague sometimes. Um, uh, they, it stings, it hurts, and it kills. It destroys our food. And then at the end, it's unbearable. It has to end. There's a progression here of intensity as, as the Lord is revealing himself. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail talking about each of these plagues. So let me just um, say something that's very, very important to know if you're going to understand what's happening in these plagues. This is super important. This is not just God doing justice, although it is that. It's justice being done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. This is God proving a point. And this is nothing less than a contest among gods. Pharaoh himself was viewed in Egypt as a god. Only a man who is a one of the gods, who has the kind of deity in him, can be in that place of power. He thinks that about himself. The people think that about him, I assume. Pharaoh, as one of the gods, presents himself among the Egyptian pantheon of gods, all these pagan deities. He presents himself and says, no, I'm in charge. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And what's going to happen by the end of what we're reading today is in the, God is going to say in the classic words of the Incredible Hulk, puny God. <laughs> and y'all know that line. Any of the Avengers fans in here, they know that line. 
when Loki claims that he's a, he's a god and the Hulk slams him all around and says, puny god. All right, that, that's what the Lord God is going to do to Pharaoh here. He's going to say, puny god. You're not who you're claiming to be. And the Lord is going to reveal who is really in charge, who the real God is. But you have to understand again, these were not people who just understood there was one great God over all the world and they knew it and they were just waiting on him. These are people who thought there were competitions. Maybe they thought there were territorial gods. Gods who, who were, would reign in Egypt or, or the most powerful God would be the one who has the most powerful empire in place in Egypt. All these kind of thoughts that they'd be wrestling with and I assume the Israelites were wrestling with it too, believing a lot of that kind of stuff. The Lord has to show himself demonstrably in order to root these ideas out and let the people gain clarity about who he is. So, first off, you can read in chapter 7 about the... And I'll, just, I'll just leave the uh, plagues up here for you in, in, in this structure for you to look at. About the Nile turning to blood. And that seems to us like, okay, pretty, pretty impressive there. But we don't realize how much they relied on the Nile. And they thought of themselves as better than other nations. They didn't have to depend on rain coming. The waters of the Nile took care of them. And they had a goddess, or a god or a goddess, that had a crocodile head that symbolized uh, the, the god of the Nile and the power of, of the Nile. What the Lord is doing is not just turning their water into blood so he can annoy them and maybe make them very, very thirsty. What he's doing is saying, I can conquer your god. Your god of the Nile? No, 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 no. I'm God of the Nile. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Then he says, no, 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 let, me, let me call your attention to verse 17 before we go further. Thus says the Lord, for ch chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord <laughs> when I turn the Nile into blood. He's going to make it known and very clear. Then he goes to the frogs. Behold, I will plague your country with frogs. Verse, chapter 8, verse 2. I have to tell you, that one doesn't seem to me to be the most fitting way to show the power of the Lord. <laughs> you know, when's the last time you threatened somebody with frogs? <laughs> Especially a nation. I'm going to, you don't do what I say. I'm going to get you with the frogs. <laughs> but here's what we don't read a lot of times. We don't know a lot of times when we read. Is that the Egyptians had a goddess that was frog-headed and they revered her for her help in childbearing we've got the goddess of the frogs the lord god comes into egypt and says oh no i'm the lord of the frogs <laughs> notice verses eight and nine here Pharaoh, the, by the way, the magicians keep trying to match what Pharaoh does, and they can match him for just a little bit somehow. And they bring out frogs too. Maybe because there are just so many, you can't hardly avoid them. I'm like, look, we got the frogs too. But they can't get rid of them. Right? And so Pharaoh comes and says, he calls Moses there and says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants, and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses, 
and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, always a strange thing there. Why, yeah, I heard a sermon years ago where somebody titled it, One More Night with the Frogs. Why, why not right now? You know, it shows the stupidity of sin sometimes. Um, we just say one more night with it. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There you go again. So that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. Tomorrow, I'll pray for you, and when I pray, you'll know this. Please understand, too, that in the text here, this is the first time Moses steps out like this. Moses is getting to know God, and he's learning how to, to risk and to pray. This is risky for Moses. What if it doesn't work? See, Moses is getting used to the power of God. And he's getting used to interactive relationship with God, and he's learning that God is moving right now powerfully. And so he says, tell me, and I'll pray. And he puts himself out there. And the Lord removes the frogs. Pharaoh hardens his heart again and continues. Then the next one we get the, the gnats. The magicians can't match this one. If you read in verse 19, they say, this is the finger of God. And from then on out, the, the Egyptians can't keep up. You get to the flies and the next of that pair. And this time, for the first time, the Bible says the Lord sets his people apart. Look in verse 22. So the flies don't go into the land where the Israelites are, into Goshen. But on that day, 822, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. This is a different little ending he tags on here to this phrase. I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. What's that mean? They mean a couple of things. One thing, though, is to know I am the Lord right here. I'm not the Lord way off out there. I'm the Lord right here. I'm in the midst of the earth. And so if I decide that flies come, I decide they come. If I decide to put an invisible barrier around the land of Goshen where my people are, I can decide that. You said it's the territory of Egypt. It's not. It's the Lord's territory. I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. And you'll know this when I do it. Well, same pattern happens. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. He seeks to get away from it, asks for prayer, and, and, and he continues to harden his heart. Uh, then you get to verses 9, 1 through 7. And this time the plague is on the livestock. I won't read it, but the Lord starts uh, to kill their livestock. And you say, well, why is that important? One reason, beyond the obvious exercise of justice, is once again, they have a cow-headed goddess among the Egyptians. You remember when they... They, uh, the Israelites are, are delivered. We're going to get to this later. And they go out into the wilderness and they get scared and they decide to make themselves an idol. What do they make? They make a cow, right? They were reverting back to their Egyptian ways when they did that. The Lord is saying, you, you think you've got the God over the cows? No, you don't. Nothing can stand in my way. None of your things that provide for you you think you're so prosperous with the Nile. You're so prosperous with all your livestock. I can take any of it anytime I want to. That's what the Lord is saying to the Egyptians, the mightiest nation on the earth. Pharaoh, the mightiest king that they know about anywhere. Not mighty next to me, the Lord God says. Now look at chapter 9. This is the text we read this morning. Well, first of all, you notice that the next plague is the boils. Seems like one of the worst ones to me. 
wouldn't want to have the boils, the painful things welling up on your skin. Then you get the hail in chapter 7, I mean in number 7, chapter 9. And this is this beautiful passage, verse 13, 9, 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. You see, we think, oh, of course, we know that. We've always heard that. They didn't know that. The Egyptians sure didn't know it, but the Israelites didn't know it either. And when we claim here, when we sing songs like we've sung this morning, please understand we do that because we're part of a long, long tradition of revelation where God has shown us that there is no one like him in all the earth. And we bow down in worship to the one and only, the true and living God. And we say, thank you, God, that you let us know that. Because not everybody has always known that. God has made it known. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. <laughs> and you've got to think about this. Pharaoh believes he's a God. And now Moses is saying these things to him. Think about how offensive that is to the great king who thinks he's a god. And then this verse that I love. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord is saying to Pharaoh, I'm not just your peer. I'm not a competitor with you. I'm not one of the gods of Egypt. I put you on the throne. I'm the reason you have power at all in this world. Imagine Moses standing there and saying that to Pharaoh. You are here because the Lord God has put you here by his permission. You are a tool in his hands. I'm not the cow god. I'm not the frog god. Frog god. I'm not the god of the Nile. I'm the God of the whole earth. And I raised you up, Pharaoh. And I did it so that I can show the world my power. Kind of puts him in his place, doesn't it? I'm the God who walks into Egypt and decides who'll be in charge here. Well, skip down to verse 27 in chapter 9. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time, I guess he didn't think he'd done it before, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to them, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The earth, the whole earth, is the Lord's. That's the message that the Lord is getting across now. You Israelites, I've chosen you to be my people. You know what that means? It doesn't mean we're just going to go 
find a little plot of land and I'm going to be God in that little plot. <laughs> it means you're my people, but I am actually the God of the whole earth. And through you, this is the message of Scripture from Old Testament to New, New Testament. Through God's people, the light goes out to all the nations. This is why we do mission work. This is why we, we train people in the, in the missionary uh, arts to know what to do, how to speak other languages, how to translate the Bible into other languages, and that kind of thing. We do mission work because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I believe it's Psalm 24 that says that. We believe that message. So we go into the territories that the not-so-powerful gods have claimed, and we claim them for the Lord Jesus. We claim them for the Lord of all the earth. Well, I've got to move, move on quickly here. Uh, chapter 10. At the beginning, you get the plague of locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son. Listen to this now. God has a plan for the future about these things. You may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I, dealt, I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know, not just that Pharaoh may know, not just that the Egyptians may know, but that you as a people may know that I am the Lord. And it's not just for you, it's for your kids and for your grandkids and for their grandkids and their grandkids and for our grandkids and our grandkids' grandkids. We have these stories of the greatness of God that are meant to be passed on because he's worthy. God wants us to know him. He wants our kids to know him. He wants our colleagues at work to know him. He wants the people all around us to know him. What does that mean? What is it we're supposed to know about God? A lot of stuff, but it starts with knowing that he is the almighty power who rules the world and no one contends with him. It's not live in that, it's to live in a fantasy world. And so my, my exhortation to you today, stop being ignorant of God. God can be known. He wants to be known and he's revealed himself. It starts with simple acknowledgement. You are God alone over all the earth. And from there we move into ever deeper relationship with him. The ninth plague, plague, the ninth, ninth plague is darkness. And this was big too, because guess, guess what else was a god to the Egyptians, as it has been in other cultures in the world? The sun. Sun god. Man, that's a powerful, powerful one, right? The whole earth depends on the sun. We worship the sun, the Egyptians say. God comes along and says, okay. What if I make it disappear? I'm going to just place darkness over all the land. You know that uh, the, the word we use, Sunday, comes from a pagan origin. I mean, it, was, it was the day of the sun. That, uh, I, I think that may be from Greek background, Greek, Roman, whatever. But uh, uh, I love it that you have this pagan day. What do people do all over the world on this day? They don't worship the sun. <laughs> They're worshiping the Lord Jesus all over the world on Sunday. I love it when God just walks in and takes something back. So, no, that's mine. Thank you very much. 
Today is Sunday, but we say today is the Lord's day. And we bow in worship to the God who is God, even though the sun, God who hung the sun in the air and can take it down when he gets good and ready. He blot it out whenever he wants to. That's what he showed the Egyptians, this darkness. And imagine, the, the scripture says, you can, you can look at it, the darkness was so strong you could feel it. Imagine that, and you're living in that for days. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. Terrifying. Well, if you can read, I don't have time to get into it. Pharaoh, he keeps negotiating with Moses. And it's kind of like, you know, he says, well, I'll let you go, but don't go very far. I'll let you go, but don't take the women and children. I'll let you go, but don't take your animals. And Moses, every time, says, nope, you got to let all of us go. You got to let us go far. And it's like, almost like Moses knows that Pharaoh knows that Moses knows what they're really going to do. <laughs> all right? And so they're not coming back. And Pharaoh keeps trying to negotiate, but every time Moses says, no, that's not the deal. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. God doesn't negotiate with oppressors. But you're going to let us go. And finally, you get to the last one that's painful for us even to read. And that's that uh, he, takes, uh, he takes their firstborn, animal and human being. And Brother Steve, next week, will probably share more with us about that when he talks about the Passover. Um, if you look in chapter 11, verse 7, you have another one of those statements. This is done so that you will know. We know who God is. And that's when, finally, you get to a place where it's over. And Pharaoh says, go. I'm done. And Pharaoh knows. And Egypt knows. And Israel knows. And the surrounding nations hear, and they know that the earth is the Lord's, and he's in charge. Now, if you read a little bit further in Exodus, we'll come to this later, but you get, you get Moses' father-in-law, who was, I assume, just a normal pagan. And look what Moses' father-in-law says to him, Jethro. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And then Jethro brings a sacrifice to the Lord God. See, this was the point that God, the great Lord, the true God, would be known throughout the earth. And we know him today because of these mighty acts. And Chris Tomlin has a song uh, you may have heard, You are the Lord, the famous one. I like those words. You are the Lord, the famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. See, God has a reputation. And this is the beginning of his reputation here in the book of Exodus where he shows his mighty power. I encourage you today, don't make God small. Get the telescope turned back around facing the right direction so that his power and dignity and goodness are magnified as they should be. And may we all here know the Lord. Lord, would you take these things that we've said today and make them real to our hearts? And would you let us know what a privilege it is to bow our knees before the great God of the universe? Humble us before you, Lord. We proclaim together right now, you are mighty, 
you never fail. You've never asked for anyone's advice. Nobody's ever given anything to you so that you have to pay them back. And Lord, we here today repent of our sins where we have treated you casually and not recognize that we are in the presence here and elsewhere of the mighty one of Israel and the great God of the earth and the universe. Make us know it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.